Um, so today's staff is Chavayin, but we're behind a little bit, so we start in Chavav Amad Aleph, near the bottom, the two dites. So we spent a lot of time yesterday in the important questions about sick person and mitzvah a person in discomfort, uh, being exempt from the sukkah, people who are traveling, being exempt, um, and we really look there at the larger issue about how you have a wide range of exemptions because the mitzvah in its core is not just a narrow technical issue of eating X amount in a sukkah, it's a broader concept of fundamentally living in a sukkah, and because that's a broader abstract concept, there are therefore more latitudes about what types of realities are considered to be living or not living in a place. Um, but we contrasted that to nowadays where we've translated the obligation into a very limited, narrow, technical sense in terms of eating X amount. We've even dropped the idea of sleeping um, and therefore um, in that context it's a little surprising to hear these wide ranges of, of exemptions. But the broader, that, but the more it's an all-encompassing obligation, the more those exemptions make sense. So now we turn to this issue of eating and sleeping in a sukkah and actually begin to sort of quantify exactly how much we're talking about because the mission says you can eat temporary eat and drink sort of temporary not a fixed meal outside of the sukkah so the Gemara says the following this is about 10 lines before the wine lines get wide about 15 lines from the bottom the Kama Achilas Arai, what's considered to be only a temporary eating, up to how much? Amr Rav Yosef Tartiot Los Bey, two or three eggs worth. Um, Rashi, if you look, Rashi did not have the gears of Bey, and Rashi says Tartiot Los, Shtaim Oshalat Pamim Yitain Lutok Piv, morsels. So it's nice to see that interesting French word, morsels. Anyway, but the amount that you normally are considered to be able to swallow in one go is an egg, so it's pretty consistent with our gears of two to three eggs. Worse. Sometimes two or three eggs worth is enough to fill people. So that would be an achilas keva. So rather says, Like a yeshiva bachar, you know, p- 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 takes a little taste of something before he goes in to, um, to, to, to the learning for the day, which is about, which is not exactly clear how much it is, but it's assumed to be the amount you could swallow in one go, so therefore it's assumed to be one egg's worth, not two to three egg's worth, and up to that it's considered temporary. Now, of what type of a food are we talking about? Interestingly, our Gemara does not distinguish what type of food you're eating, only talks about quantity. Um, you know, um, there is a Gemara that exists actually elsewhere um, in uh, Yoma that actually discusses um, um, that the question about whether peri, whether fruit is boy sukkah or not needs a sukkah and the conclusion of that Gemara is that fruit does not need a sukkah the question is what's in the category of fruit even and what's in the category even if you're it, what's in the category of fruit what's in the category of other things uh, generally it's assumed that bread and mizono certainly is what we're talking about here fruits based on the Gemara Yoma certainly is what we're not how about things that are in the middle like you know meat and potatoes where does that go so there's a whole debate about whether, which category that goes in. We tend to be, as I've already indicated, pretty, um, you know, pretty um, uh, limiting, narrow in our def- definition of what technically is obligated in a sukkah, and we focus on, you know, bread and mizonos and wine is somewhat discussed. Um, but that, interestingly, in our Gemara here, what you're eating is not discussed, just how much. And now we are saying that, according to Abaye, up to an egg's worth, up to and including an egg's worth, can be outside of a sukkah. Yeah. Tanur Abanan. Oh, so, and so again, this is assuming that we're talking about whatever those foods are that are obligated, which is not the discussion here. 
You can eat a temporary eating out of the sukkah. But not a temporary sleeping. You can't take a nap. Um, my time, what's the reason? Why is a nap different than eating? So, we're afraid that you'll, you'll fall into a deep sleep. So technically a nap is not a problem, but it's afraid of where it will lead to. So Abai said to him, that which we turn in Brice, a person can have a temporary sleeping with Tefillin, but not a permanent one. So according to you, every time that you allow somebody to nap, you're afraid it'll be a deep sleep. So how can you ever halachically distinguish between the two? Because one will always lead into the other. So, um, um, why don't we afraid that it becomes a deep sleep? So I'm Rav Yosef, pray to Rabbi Lai, Alright, that would be a case where you told other people to wake you up. So that's a special circumstance, and that's why it would be allowed to take that nap with your tefillin on. So Maski for Rav Mesharshus, or Mesharshus asked on that. Or Zecha Arvatsarev, your, you know, your uh, co-signer, your guarantor, and he's in his own guarantor. How do you know the guy you've asked for <laughs> won't himself fall asleep? So this is actually interesting because this issue about can you have somebody else remind you comes up about issues like can you do certain things before you davened and so on and do we say you can't trust somebody that they'll forget so what about if you use electronic devices and set alarms? Um, uh, So that's a very serious question. But anyway, he says it cannot be if you're afraid that a napping will lead, thank you, to a deep sleep then there's no explanation of why you're allowed to sleep with take a nap with children. So the Gemara says all right, let's take a look tomorrow. I'm fine. We're not talking about that you're trusting somebody else, but we're talking about that you're not lying down on a couch for a little nap. We're talking about you put your head between your knees. You know, it's like trying to fall asleep on, a, on, on, a, on an airplane flight. So, you know, sometimes maybe you're lucky and it happens. But basically, if you're just putting your head between your knees, you're putting your head down on, on your desk, you're not lying down, we're not afraid that that'll turn into a big sleep. So fundamentally, there's nothing wrong with a nap. Nap, but but we're always concerned that a nap will turn into a sleep, into a deep sleep. Why do we allow it by tefillin? Because it's a special case when it won't happen. Rava, Rava says, "Ain kevalishina." Rava says, "No, um, there's a difference." Rava says that it's about by sukkah. The issue, sort of, what we're going to say is, is that by tefillin, the concern is not about sleeping per se. There's no problem yeah. per se to sleep with tefillin. The problem is passing gas. So by tefillin, a tiny little nap, we're not afraid that it will happen. Only when you get to a big sleep. And that's why the whole concern by tefillin was that a nap will turn into a sleep. But the rubber says, I'm not concerned that naps will turn into a sleep. A nap is a nap. A nap won't turn into a deep sleep. So by tefillin, where the only issue is passing gas, and that's only a concern when you're in a deep sleep, you're allowed to nap. A nap will just be a nap. And that's not a problem by tefillin. But by sukkah, that's different. By sukkah, it's not what will happen to it. It's that the very act of taking a nap is considered to be keva. What does that mean it's considered to be keva? Because remember, by sukkah the question is, what types of acts constitute living in a place? So, you know, when you're going out at other places, you know, you'll take a little snack, right? You'll go to, you'll, you'll snack on the street, you'll snack in your office, you'll snack wherever you are. Snacking is something you do, you do not specifically in your house. But sleeping, it would be very rare for you to sleep somewhere that's not in your house. You're lucky to have a couch in your office, so maybe you can sleep in your office too. But fundamentally, eating are types of things that are not necessarily, especially a little a snacking, is something that doesn't necessarily speak about where you live to the same degree of the places where you will nap. And therefore, he says, napping is considered to be a, you know, a 
central to the idea, an act that is central to the idea of living in a place, and that's what I mean, ain't kevel, you know, um, ain't, what, what, uh, what is it, ain't kevelushina, or what, what's the phrase, right, ain't kevelushina. But, if the concern is passing gas, there's a difference between napping and a deep sleep. But if the, prefer, if the, if the sense is where are you sort of setting your roots down, there, even by a nap, is, a nap is defined, defines where it is that you are living. Okay, so that's a very nice conceptual difference. Now we have three brightas. One brighta says you can sleep with tefillin temporary but not permanent. That's sort of what we've been saying. That we're not afraid of passing gas and maybe it's a special case according to Abaye where you won't come to where, somebody, where, where you won't come to lead to a deep sleep or I'm sorry which Rav Yosef uh, Ravashi excuse me that you're allowed to do both temporary and permanent. That's a pretty big surprise. When you have a third brisa, you're not allowed at either. So what is, how do you explain these three brisas other than to say that they're arguing? Lokash, it's not difficult. If you're holding on to tefillin in your hands, so then you can sleep um, temporary and permanent because we're not, I'm sorry, there you can sleep, um, uh, da, 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 one minute, that's when you cannot sleep even permanent, excuse me, that's even when it's, that even arrived, right, that's when it's the most strict because even a little nap, your hands will open up and your tefillin will fall down. So even though it's not on you and there's not a passing gas issue, if you're holding it in your hand, even a nap would be a problem. The second case, the middle case, is when you're wearing it, it's on your head. It's interesting that Gemara often emphasizes the head fill-in when it's talking about this. Like when it speaks about somebody who never wore fill-in, it talks about carcasta de lo fill-in, a skull that never had fill-in on it. It's fascinating the Gemara's focus more on the tefillin shel rosh over the tefillin shel yad so I don't know maybe because it's the row it's visible anyway so if it's on your head if you're wearing it that's our distinction a nap is okay we're not afraid of passing gas deep sleep is a problem because you'll come to pass gas and if however it's wrapped up in a, bla- in, a, in a handkerchief and you're just sort of sleeping nearby it and you're protecting it or then that would be okay okay um, yeah well maybe it's not appropriate to even be sleeping having it in bed with you you know it's by your pillow you know there's so that but that's okay because it's wrapped up and it's not being worn the kamashinas arrive now now that we distinguish for tefillin purposes not for sukkah for the reasons we said but for tefillin purposes we distinguish between a napping and a sleeping a deep sleep what could constitute napping so tiny the time it takes to walk a hundred amot now how long is a hundred amot so I will tell you halachically we basically assume there's a debate about all this but we basically assume that the time it takes to walk a meal is 18 minutes Okay, so that's relevant for like the idea of when Shia is and Sait is, well not Shia, but Sait and all those types of things. A meal is 2,000 amot. So for simplicity's sake, let's call, let's call, uh, let's call it 20 minutes, not 18 minutes. Okay, so it's 2,000 amot for 20 minutes, so you do the math, it's 100 amot every minute, right? Did you get that? Right? Because the 2,000 amot, right, right, is, right, is 20 times 100, right? So therefore, it's about one minute. So 100 amot is about one minute. What? A one minute nap. One minute nap, right. Very temporary. Really. A real power nap. Look, I, I find sometimes I can go like for five, ten minutes and it'll compensate for like two, three hours of missed sleep the night before. It'll be great. But, you know, that's five minutes. That's not one minute. <laughs> so anyway, so the most says, Chidei Yiluch which is about a minute. If somebody is sleeping in chillin, now here's a new problem, which is not, doesn't seem to be the normal concern, but here it's talking about if this happens, somebody is sleeping with chillin and they have a uh, seminal emission, 
Ochez b'ritzu'ah, you grab to the, to the strap, the eno ochez b'ketitzah, but you don't, and you have to remove it, you shouldn't be wearing it while you're in this state, before you've cleaned yourself up, so you're told it by the strap, but not by the actual, like, a base itself, not by the actual box itself. Stephen Rebbe Yaakov, that's what Rebbe Yaakov says, the Chachamim say, Yashin Adam Mitzvah and Shinas Araya, Velo Shinas Keva. That you can sleep temporary, but not permanent. It's funny, Rabbi Yaakov didn't relate to that question. Yeah. So Tosa says, maybe they're debating whether we allow you to take a, like, to take a little, to, you know, to, to, to take a nap at night, you know. It's, uh, somehow we're debating what, what, what types of cases we're concerned will lead to Keva, maybe. Anyway, not exactly clear where Rabbi Yaakov holds about this Araya and Keva. But nevertheless, the Kamashinas arrive, but within the Chachamim that make clearly this distinction, how much is a temporary sleep? Today he looked Maya Amma, a hundred Amot, which again is very little, it's like a minute. Amarav, said Rav, Asaladam Lisham Biyom Yosem Hasus. You can't sleep in a day. So now that before we were talking about wearing tefillin and the concern that it'll lead to a deep sleep and passing gas, now we're just talking about, you know, you shouldn't be wasting your time taking naps in the middle of the day. So Rashi says, Bittu Tov. So ha- you can't sleep, Yosem Mishinah Hasus, more than a horse sleeps. Okay, the Kamashinah Hasus, how much does a horse sleep? Shisi Nishmi. 60 breaths. I don't know what that means, but I guess 60 inhales and exhales of a horse. So I've got to know. I've never worked with horses. I don't know. But that can't be too much. What is that? 60 seconds? Also a minute? Of yet very little time. One minute. Amar Baye. What? There you go. For a human. So a breath of a horse is what? Five seconds? No, three seconds would have to be 60 breaths. Three, three and a half minutes. So a breath of a horse would have to be. Not clearly defined. Not clearly defined. Right? But it's increased. Oh, that's a good point. In other words, it could be a half hour. Right, right. Average is about 16 or so. About how much? 12 to 16 per minute. 12 16 breaths breath. per minute. Uh-huh. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so that's good because also the time between the breaths. So if you're saying three minutes, that's three and a half minutes, that's also about 16 breaths per minute. Is that figuring about the same as it is for humans? Although I don't know what it is for horses. All right, so at least you can take it. Three and a half hours here for horses. Three and a half hours? Oh, a half hour. A half hour for a horse to take 60 breaths? It could be. And then there's another opinion that says the period in question is not less than three hours. Okay, why am I guessing that the opinions quoted there act, never actually did any empirical studies? I'm just, I'm just taking a wild guess. All right. It can't be too much. It sounds like three to five minutes is probably a reasonable guess. All of this seems quite extreme. I mean, uh, but um, like I said, for my power naps, I need at least 10, 15 minutes. All right, so the message is like this. Amar Abaye, so I, I pass in like the position 30 minutes. We'll have to tell the horses, okay? <laughs> so Abaye says, Shing Seizamar, the sleeping of the master, which is Rabba, which is Abaye's Rebbe, Kinurav. So as the, what, what he, so Rabba learned how much to nap during the day from his Rebbe, Rav. Udarav and Rav learned it. Kidarebi slept as much during the day like his Rebbe, which is Rebbe, Rebbe Udanasi. The Rebbe and Rebbe just learned how much to nap during the day. Kidadavid. Not like he had a tradition going all the way back to David. The David, and how long did David nap during the day? Kidasusya, like a horse. For the Susya, she's in Ishmi. So that's, we're back to that. 60 breaths is the amount you should be napping during the day. Abai has a noyin. Now Abai would sleep to the Naomi Pumpadisa to Bekubi. The time it took to travel from Pumpadisa to Bekubi. Now, how far is that? So, if you look at Rashi, Rashi says, the Mesfarish Parsi. It says in another place, six parsings. And then the side says, I have no idea where it says it in this other place. And it never says that this is the distance of six parsaot. But a parsa is four meal. Okay? Now, a meal, I told you, is 18 minutes. 
So a parsa is 72 minutes. Let's even round and call it an hour. So according to Rashi, if it's six parsas, that's six hours. <laughs> that's quite a different extreme than what we've been talking about. Okay, that is some nap. So Kariyale Rev Yosef, so Rev Yosef said about Abaye, um, who Rev Yosef, Abaye was a student, and Matayatel Tishkav, O lazy person, how long will you sleep? Matayatakumishinatecha, when will you get up from your slumber? So on the one hand, you have one extreme, which is like one minute, three minutes, maybe five minutes of style, right? And that, that at least maybe we could manage. But according to Rashi, Abaye went six hours. It's a little hard to imagine. Yeah, 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 so. Well, yeah, anyway. Yeah, my, yes. my question was, if you're not allowed to hold the well, first of all, it could be the wrap here, and it's, uh, I mean, also you have no choice here. You know, you're, it's, you have to remove it, and you, this is the well, only. You just hold the body. That's not considered. It's not considered covetous to be holding the body when you're in this state. But what you know, to have directly be in contact with the actual bias of the of the trillet. But I hear the point is true. Under normal circumstances, you don't hold it by the strap. All right, If somebody goes to sleep during the day. Um, you want to take a nap during the day. And we just talked about only a temporary nap, not a permanent nap, so not, not, not a deep sleep. So during the day, presumably it would only be a nap. So that we learned was possibly okay. So that's why it says, If you want, you could take it off. You, want, you can leave it on. It's only during the day. It's only a nap. If you're going at night, you have to take it off and you can't leave it on. Um, because that's about an issue about a deep sleep or even in maybe a nap at night might lead to a deep sleep. We haven't discussed that, but Tosu discusses whether napping and the concern of napping leading to a deep sleep would be different in the day or at the night. That's what Rabbi Nossam says. Rabbi Yossi says, Hayiladim, which is so funny, Yiladim we translate as kids, but here it means young men. A young men, they always have to take off their chillin and can't leave them on, presumably even during the daytime. Because they are const- they have a more accustomed for tumah, which means that they will more regularly have seminal emission. So we think it just means that they'll more naturally when they sleep. Until now we've been talking about a concern of casting gas, but maybe... And maybe Yaladim even means, you know, teenagers even before they're married, you know. People, we're afraid that they'll have seminal emission when they sleep, and therefore, even if they nap, it's going to be a concern, this will be a concern. What? Even young men after they're married? Well, we're going to see in a minute. For right now, we assume even if they're not married. So the Gemara says, Maybe Rabbi Yossi holds that somebody who has had a seminal mission can't work film because we know a whole discussion in Brachos is that when a person is a, has, has been a Balkari, are they forbidden to daven, to say Brachos, to do any, to learn Torah until they go to the mikvah? So maybe this is a similar issue. He's concerned that you'll be a, they'll be a Balkari and therefore they won't be able to wear tefillin. Now, of course, it's a little bit strange because if he was a concern about that they were a Balkari when they were awake, he wouldn't say, you know, he wouldn't say when they're going to sleep. He would say that they cannot, uh, you know, that they can't wear tefillin in general because they're often a Balkari. So, if, and his only concern is that they'll become a Balkari while they're sleeping, which seems to be the issue. Then it's not the issue about being a Balkari that's also to wear tefillin. It's like the Gemara we saw before. It's that when actually somebody has just had a seminal emission and hasn't had a chance to, you know, to clean himself, that that's a problem. Even if a Balkari in general is not a tefillin, Balkari means something that happened before. Right here, the concern is while you're wearing tefillin, it'll happen. And it's fascinating that the Gemara does not distinguish those cases. It, it says, "Oh, if you've got a problem with that, you must have a problem with the Balkari." No, 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 Balkari isn't real, but that wasn't happened a while ago. I'm concerned it's going to happen while you're wearing the tefillin. So it's funny that the Gemara doesn't distinguish those cases, and rather than feel that it's going to be put in a corner to say, "Can you get me?" Yes, thank you. To put in a corner to say that a Balkari has to cannot can never wear tefillin, it says the following. 
So it says, Amar No, we're not talking about, about just being a Valkyrie. We're talking about young men who are married and they can't go ahead and keep their tefillin on even if they're taking, you know, even if they're going to bed just for a brief period of time if they're going to be with their wives. Because then we're afraid that if they're going to, to bed with their wives in bed, that they might come to actually have sex with their wives. So that's the concern. Now, so therefore, then, even if it's only like, a, you know, even if you're only going to bed for a few minutes, there we're concerned that if you're going to bed with your wife, you know, with, with your wife, it'll lead to sex, and that's the problem. Again, quite fascinating, number one. So we're not concerned about that if people aren't so young. Yeah. They can go to them, they go lie, you know, husband, you know, husband and wife can lie in bed, the man can be wearing filling, that's not a problem. Number one. And number two, again, the fact that the Gemara felt that it was the same question about Balkari wearing tefillin as the concern that actually the person would become a Balkari while wearing tefillin, which obviously from the previous Gemara seems to be a much more severe concern. Anyway, let's just wrap this up. If somebody forgot and actually had tefillin on again, all of this shows you sort of like the discussion. It's actually quite fascinating. It just occurs to me, you know, because this seems to all be a digression from the issue about, about whether you're going to fall asleep. But if you think about it, there's actually a powerful parallel between how tefillin used to be and how sukkah used to be as opposed to how both of those are right now, right? I was talking about how sukkah used to be this very all-encompassing for the whole week you're living in your sukkah. So, it's not like only during these technical, very narrowly defined experiences. The whole week, so we give you more latitude because fundamentally you're living in your sukkah. Well, you know what? That's what tefillin used to be. You would wear tefillin the whole day. So we're reading here discussions about going and lying in bed with your tefillin on, you know, and whatever, and maybe even for people that aren't so young, you know, they, you know maybe we think that they're not, you know, having sex all the time, so they can actually go lie, men can go lie in bed with their wives with their tefillin on, all these things, and somebody forgets and has sex with his wife when it's tefillin on, you know, it's like to us, it's like, it's like scandalous to be even thinking you got anywhere near, near those situations. But if you're wearing tefillin all the time, right, so then there's going to be like a lot more latitude of the circumstances in which we let you wear tefillin. You know, and the time, so, and so it's, again, there's a very interesting, I think it just occurs to me, parallel between what sukkah used to be and what tefillin used to be as opposed to how we now experience. We now experience very, very concrete, very narrowly defined, and we also, you know, and assume tefillin is very narrowly defined, so it never occurred to us that these situations could ever get ever get close to these situations when you're wearing tefillin. So let's just read the situation. So opposed to the case before where a person just had a seminal omission where he could take off his tefillin with, uh, by holding the straps here where he actually had sex while he was wearing tefillin he can't even take it off by the straps. But you have to first wash your hands because in the other case, we weren't concerned that his hands were, were had touched an improper place. He was just in an improper state himself. But here that he actually had sex, his hands touched places that are not clean. Um, because hands are very busy. And therefore, even he has to wash his hands before he even comes in contact with the strap of Philip. So he's in the so, bathroom. What? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yes, so Texas a University Extension Service the average <laughs> respiratory rate for a resting horse is 8 to 16 breaths per minute. 8 to 16 okay. per minute. Oh, there and you go. And the horse is walking, the rate triples. Aha. So, but if it's... You're talking at most 7.5 minutes. And okay. quite possibly much shorter than All right, but I'll take seven and a half minutes. It's getting close. You could digress, uh, you know, not just last topic, to the whole concept of a modern tefillin date. Right. Oh, God, please. <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> 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 
We suspect, I think, that, uh, for example, the Tefillin Shel Rosh were part of like a normal, um, normal garments, the way people <coughs> in the Middle East and Arabs like cover their head and there's a strap around the top, so uh-huh. that would be like a piece of the, just the additional Kedusha. Right. Do we have any information about what they did with their hands and their fingers? In other words, if they were wearing the Shel Yad. It's very cumbersome. Yeah. Oh, you mean that did it go all the way up to no, the fingers, the like ours does? No, I don't think that there's. I, right, right, right. I'd have to find out more about that. But I, uh, you know, there, I, there's no Gemara that talks about all the wrappings right. all the way up to the hand, and it's a very good point. How do you use your hand if the tefillin is going all the way up there? Yeah, that's a good point. But I, I will say that at the same time, where it's very clear how regular how they're wearing tefillin throughout the day, there are Gemaras that speak so heavily about the constant consciousness that has to be on the tefillin, particularly about, you know, the tefillin shalosh and always being, always feeling it and recognizing yeah. like the fifth. So it's hard to imagine anybody could have really lived up to that degree of a constant consciousness. Yes. Well, thinking just overall, this is a sort of attention. Because on the one hand, you know, these days, you're not doing anything but eating, you know, but when we were saying before, you know, you just really be living in the circle. So let's say you have this, uh, me pushing your in your head, right? You're processing the circle, but it's only but it's you're really not, you're not going to be any more comfortable in home or in the right. So why not just eat from the circle? I agree. I this is what I said yesterday is that I think that people don't use the Peturim as liberally as they exist in the Gemara and that's a reflection of the fact that we don't fundamentally approach the Chiyuz as broadly as we do in the Gemara. Days, I think, no, uh, technically those things still apply but I think the but I think you know all, with, as with everything the devil's in the details like how broadly or narrowly do you understand the circumstances that qualify and I think even when technically there is a Petur you know people are not eager like, don't take it as readily because of the way in which you know at this religious Psychological level, we have re, we, you know, we, re, you know, recategorize, you know, redefine the nature of the mitzvah. Okay, so let's now look at the next mission, which continues this idea of eating temporarily outside the sukkah. They brought for Rabbi Yochanan Zakai to taste some of the stew. Um, they brought to Rabbi Gamliel two pressed uh, dates. And a bucket of water. And they said, bring it up to the sukkah. Now that's interesting because those would seem to us to be Achila Sarai, right? When they gave to Rabbi Tzadok, presumably bread, as we'll see, he would eat less than an egg's worth of bread. He would take it with a handkerchief. A, he would eat that amount outside of a sukkah. And he would not make a, he would not bench because it's less than a kibetza. And he wouldn't do nitilas yadayim. So a lot of interesting things about Rabbi Tzadok, but let's first work about the first two cases. Again, as I mentioned, as I mentioned, what is fascinating is that in Sukkah, more than in a lot of other Masechtos, you have a lot of ma'asim, you have a lot of actual stories about how the rabbis acted. It's always quite fascinating, right? Like, like you know, we say, well, you know, everybody, you know, why not? There's a lot to observe. Yeah, but like, how many stories do you have in Masechtos Shabbos? You know, where everybody's keeping Shabbos every week. So it is interesting how many stories you have here in Sukkah. Okay. Masa Lee story. What? So it's... Yes? Uh, I find it difficult to relate two sukkahs together. So in one case, it's sort of a dish of food at a bucket of water. Right. Larger quantities. Right. In the other case, you brought a less than a base of worth of uh, food. And we just learned that if it's under three... 
Right, or under or, or up to one. So that the Gemara is going to address the issue of, of quantity. So let's read the Gemara, okay? So that'll be in the Gemara partly, and partly it gets to the issue about what types of foods, which is not directly discussed in our Gemara. So the Gemara says like this: Masa listor? Is this a is this a story that is contra- that is coming to contradict? You just said a temporary eating outside of sukkah, and this certainly seems to be like to taste. Let's start with the first taste, which is obviously temporary, right? It's obviously a small quantity. You have a little bit of a taste of what's be of, of the stew that's cooking. So you just said that it, ha- it can be outside of sukkah. And here you said they said bring it to a sukkah. Chisurei mechzerei. Here it's 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 missing some words, or it's as if it's missing words. Vahariktani, and this is what it means to say. If you want to be strict on yourself, machmir, you can be strict. The late Beimishum Yura does not seem to be like a religious conceit. Um, um, the, um, there's a better word for URL. What word did they usually translate URL as? Haughtiness. Haughtiness or what? Arrogance, religious. Anyway, okay. They brought him to taste the taste the stew. They brought to 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 date. And they said, bring it to sukkah. This is an idea we're going to see top of a little bit later as well. That the minimums are minimums, but there's an idea as we've spoken about of trying to do everything in a sukkah. Now, again, sometimes you do a lot. If you did a lot more things. Sometimes it's not about quantity, but quality. Like, you know, you would understand, oh, I have to have my snack in a sukkah. That might actually be a little bit of like, you are right. You understand why the Gemara, why that has to be a concern. But snacking is not necessarily something that happens, you know, that happens in the home, right? Whereas some things that are not technically required might be less of a, you know, more like a lichat chila rather than just like a balahachmir. Like if I want to be like a watching TV, reading a novel, sitting around and schmoozing with people, those are the types of natural things you do in the home and that wouldn't even be a, maybe a, a lahachmir. That maybe would be the ideal way to be mekayim to sukkah in this broader sense. But here, when it's just a tiny little snack, to be makhbi to do it in a sukkah, that might be considered a chumrah. And the Gemara says, you know what, even that is okay to do. That's not a yura concern. One minute. And when they gave it to Rebbe Tzadok, so now the Gemara asked the question that was just asked. It sounds like he would be saying it's because it's less than a beitza. It sounds like once it's a beitza, it needs a sukkah. This could be a contradiction of Rav Yosef and Abai. Rav Yosef said up to three eggs doesn't need a sukkah. And even Abaye, presumably when he said like you pop in your mouth, that's understood to be one egg's worth. So, according to Abai, even one egg doesn't need a sukkah. And here you only did less than an egg's worth. So the Gemara says, no. Because it was less than an egg, it got him out of everything. Less than an egg not only gets you out of sukkah, sukkah you get out of even with less than three eggs, maybe, according to Rav Yosef. But less than an egg not only got you out of sukkah, it got you out of washing your hands and birchas hamazon. Hakibetza, once you have an egg's worth, boy, mitilu bracha, then you have to wash your hands and do birchas hamazon. You might not need a sukkah yet. But that, but, but if, to get out of all three, it needs to be less than an egg. So I want to say a few points about this. Number one, okay, the issue about washing hands and birchas hamazon. We pass in birchas hamazon, you do even with kazayas. 
um, that's this huge Tosfos that we pass in even a Kazai from Gerchaz Mandan. A bracha Rishona, even, even a tiny amount. I'll get to Washington. A bracha Rishona, even a tiny amount, okay, because that's a, you're not allowed to get pleasure from this world without a bracha. So there's no minimum amount for a bracha Rishona. But Birchaz Mandan, we rule, is a, even a Kazai's worth. Hand washing is actually a debate whether it's a kibetz or a kezayis, what is the minimum amount for hand washing? Um, and there's some issue about, uh, you know, um, I didn't re... Uh, I, I, I have to... I, I, I would have to recheck the, you know, the exactly, you know, the exact debates, the exact positions about it. But there's some question about whether you make a bracha if it's between a kezayis and a kibetz, how we actually pop it. Yeah, but there's some debate about whether washing hands at the beginning is a, is a kezayis or a kibetz or a halacha lemaaseh. Um, in terms of the issue about if he didn't wash his hands, why did he why did he cover his hands? What, what's this compromise of covering his hands? You know, sometimes he's like, oh, there's no water, let's just hold it with a napkin. So I'm not going to discuss that, but I will say that that uh, you know Rashi says it's just for cleanliness purposes. Tosa says no, no, no. Actually, he was a kohen and he would normally eat any food as if it were truma, and therefore. That's okay. And therefore, even if it were the general requirement of washing hands, he would not want to come into direct contact. He would not want to come into direct contact um, with uh, with foods as if it were truma, because if it were truma, you couldn't. You would, you know. Then even if there was a technical reason to get out of the hand washing issue, you would still have to avoid touching the food. So there's, that's the issue about wa- about covering the hands. From that, should not be inferred that covering the hands is an alternative to washing the hands. The whole point here is less than a kibbutz did not require washing the hands. So that's as far as those are concerned. As far as back to the sukkah issue, so we understand a little tasting of the of the tafshil is less than a kibetzah. We understand that this less than a kibetzah, maybe even if it was more, you know, it was still, we had the minimums we said before. But the question is, how about the bucket of water? Isn't the bucket of water more than an egg's worth or two or three egg's worth? And that gets back to the point that this Gemara is not discussing, which is what type of food are we talking about? Okay? So there is a discussion in the Gemara, as I said, in Yoma about whether fruit need a sukkah no matter how much fruit you eat and the conclusion there seems to be that fruit do not need a sukkah presumably you know water would be obvious that no amount of water is ever considered keva that seems to be my understanding right to answer the question that was asked so so it's not just an issue of quantity um, but uh, the Gemara here especially when it gets to the Rav case we were talking about bread because there was about washing hands and doing a birchat hamazon. So their quantity clearly, if quantity matters at any time, what food definitely needs a sukkah? It's bread. And therefore we were looking at that amount of, of quantity. But some of the other examples, like the bucket of water, presumably there was never an issue that water was not considered Kevin would not need a sukkah. Yes? How does the issue of quantity in Londonese definitions for requiring washing and brachot um, interact with the distinction between tafikar and tafail? Let's have a whole... A whole uh, yeah. plate of salty herring and an entire pizza to mop it up. Okay, so I don't yeah. want to talk about that. That's a broccoli yeah, discussion. Okay, yes. Uh, what about the broccoli shit basuka? We haven't talked about that. Okay, so that's a good point. That actually is uh, comes up. There's a gemara that discusses the bracha. Um, so, and when we get to that gemara, it's coming up in like a week or so okay. or more. We'll talk about actually, I think about two or three weeks. Okay. Anyway, we'll talk about that when we get to it in the gemara. I think it's on Daf Mem something. Okay, so let's take a look at the at the mishnah. Rabbi Yezer Omer, Arbaas Reisudas Chayiv Adam Lechol B'Sukkah. A person has to eat fourteen meals in a sukkah. Achas Biyom Bachas Belaylo, one in the day and one at night. Two meals every day for all seven days. 
there's no there's no minimum amount or there's no you know there's no limit but also no lower limit the only time you're obligated to eat in the sukkah is the first time it doesn't mean that you can eat out of a sukkah we just said it's us you can't eat out of a sukkah we implicitly said that okay but the point is you don't have to be eating right you don't have to you can go on a you can starve you can go on a tinnitus or you can eat fruit or you can eat things that don't require sukkah you can always eat tiny little snacks Okay, there's not an obligation to make sure that you eat in a sukkah, you eat an amount that's obligated in the sukkah, except for the first night. The Odom Rebbe Eliezer, Rebbe Eliezer also says, If somebody did not eat the first night, he should make up the last night, Shochag, meaning the night of Shmini uh, Atzeret. Okay, which is interesting. Why is he, A, why is he giving greater status to the first night if he just said that you're supposed to eat all 14 nights, all, four, all 14 meals? And B, how could you be eating Shmini Atzeret if you're eating it outside of a sukkah? Okay, the Chachamim, I mean, the Chachamim say, so we'll talk about that. Um, no, I'm sorry, you can't make it up. Something perverted cannot be fixed, right? Like Kohelis is read a a good point. And something lacking cannot be made up. Okay, now by the way, this idea that you can make up until the last night and the whole idea of Tashlumim is an idea that is paralleled in a Mishnah in, by Chagiga that you bring the Chagiga on the first day of the, of the Chag, but if you didn't bring the Chagiga on the first day of Chag, you can bring it on any day of the Chag, up to and including, right, the last night. So therefore, or the last day, so, well, whatever, we won't get into details about that. But anyway, so it's a similar type of a parallel um, oh, uh, uh, by there, but the Chanim say that does not work for eating in the Sukkah. Okay, so yeah, well, let, let, let's see a little Gemara. My time is Rabbi Eliezer. What's the reasoning of Rabbi Eliezer that's the first in the first debate that says you need 14 times? So Teshu, it says you shall dwell in a sukkah, like you live in a house. The same way when you live in a house, you eat two meals a day. Even in a sukkah, you eat two meals a day, one a day, one a night. And the rabbis would say back, no, Kidira, like you live, Madiri by nobody is forcing you to have, to eat every day, twice a meal, unless you're a kid and your parents are forcing you, but otherwise, you can choose. Even by a sukkah, right? Like I've been saying before, it's not like it's supposed to be a prison. It's not like it's supposed to demand that you do these types of things. You're supposed to treat it as you would a house, which gives you the right to choose in a certain amount of latitude. Okay, so that's the Chachamim. By the way, Tosus points out, if you look at Tosus, Teshu came to Duru, Tosus says, Okay, so meaning that we know of people that dwelled in a place for seven days. Aaron and his children dwelled in the old Moed for seven days. We're about to read it, right? And therefore, if you live in a sukkah, you've got to live constantly seven days. So that's interesting, learning it out from the Oel Moed idea, um, you know, and that idea of what it means to like fully inhabit a place. But also, we've been t- discussing before, you know, sukkahs anane kavod and being in the presence of God and, you know, sort of being under, you know, directly, you know, in God's presence and the whole idea of the Kodesh Kadashim and the Kaporeth and the Kruvin. You might remember all of that imagery. So here, there's one connection of Rabbi Eliezer that's putting you in the Oel Moed, like with Aaron and his son, you know, so very powerful. But our Gemara focuses more on what it really means to fully live in a place. So the Gemara says like this. Um, says Gemara, if you really, it's totally at your option whether you're going to eat or not eat. When you eat, it has to be in the sukkah. But you can choose whether to eat or not eat. So even on the first night. 
So Amr Yochan Shemir B'Shemin Yotzadok Nemer Kan Chamisha Sar. It says on the fifteenth of of you know of the seventh month of uh, of Tishrei. V'Nemer L'Chamisha Sar. V'Nemer Chamisha Sar B'Chagamatzos. And it says on the fifteenth of the first month by Chagamatzos. Mal Halan Laila Harishon Chova. The same way the first night there's an obligation to eat matzah. Mikan Beilach Rishus. From here on, there on in, it's, it's you know you can choose to eat matzah. But we understand that although the Torah says seven days you shall eat matzah, that does not strictly mandate it. The way we know that is because in one place the Torah says six days eat matzah. So we understand that that's to sig- signify or signal that it's not an obligation to do it each day, but that the nature of the Chag is a time when matzah is eaten, but you don't actually strictly have to meet it, eat it every day. That only the first night is an obligation. So here too, Mikan Be'lech Rishus, Avkan Laila Rishon Chovi, here too, only the first night is an obligation. Mikan Be'lech Rishus, thereon after it is a, it's volitional. Now it's not the same volitional, because you can actually never eat matzah for the rest of, for the rest of, Pesach, by sukkahs, when you are eating, you must eat in a sukkah. But nevertheless, it is possible to go the whole chaz without eating in a sukkah if you just never eat the requisite amount. So similarly there, you can, you can, you can choose never to eat matzahs other than the first night. You just said that we don't have to eat in the sukkah if we eat certain foods. Right. So that's why I said. You can choose to eat the types and the amounts. So right, there's I should no the t- obligation then to eat in the sukkah. Correct after the first night. Correct, correct. All I'm saying is that the difference is is that you, in, during Sukkot, you can put yourself in circumstances that create an obligation. When you are eating, let's say, a certain amount and a certain type of food, you become obligated in the Sukkot, whereas by matzah, that never happens. So, for example, if I eat matzah, if I eat matzah, if I eat matzah on the other days of, of, of Pesach, I don't make a bracha. When I eat in a sukkah on the other days of sukkahs, I do make a bracha. And the basic difference is, is that by sukkah, when you are choosing to have bread and to have a certain amount, then you actually become obligated. Whereas by matzah, you never become obligated after the first night. But in both cases, you can, you can construct it that you'll never have to eat on the rest of the days. Okay. Okay. Where do you know the first night is an obligation? The verse says, Now, actually, the verse says, uh, What does it say? It says, um, uh, um, so actually, the whole verse in context says eat matzos for seven days. But we cut out those three words to read nighttime matzot, meaning only the first night is there an obligation. The verse made it an obligation. So the same way it's an obligation the first night for Pesach, it's an obligation the first night for Sukkot, regardless of what you don't get to choose whether you want to have a meal or not. Now there's a lot of interesting things that come from this Gemara. I'll just mention a few of them briefly. Number one, Tosos points out, it sounds like you can choose not to have a meal on the other days, uh, on the rest uh, on the rest of Cholamoid and even on the daytime of Sukkot. Okay? But what a minute, Tosos says, okay, that's true. Tosos says, but does that mean that you don't have a chiv to have a suda on the other, on the, uh, you know, on, uh, you know, on Yantiv? Because like the daytime of Sukkot, you don't have to have a suda. So if I forget, A, I wouldn't have to have a suda. B, if I forgot, let's say, yellow yavo and benching, I wouldn't have to say it again because you only have to say it again when there's an obligation to have a suda. So those are things, yeah, that actually does sound like that's the conclusion of this Gemara. That only that there's no chiv of suda. You know, now, of course, you can make a distinction again. Well, maybe you have to eat a kezayis, but you don't have to eat a kebetza. There's that gap between what technically makes a suda and what degree is obligated in a sukkah. Okay, but that's one issue, Tosus raises. Is that really true? You don't have to have a suda on the 
on, on, the, on the other days and certainly not on the rest of Yantav, right? Wouldn't you think you would have an obligation of Yantav day? That's, I don't know, that's one question. The other question is, more directly about the mitzvah of eating in a sukkah, is how much is the eating of a sukkah on the first night like eating of matzah? The big debate that comes up in the Rishonin is, to what degree is it in the context of a chilat sukkah, and to what degree, or living in a sukkah, an expression of living in a sukkah, and to what degree is it more like a chilat matzah, and it just focuses on do this eating, not in the context of living in a sukkah. What's the biggest nafkimina? The biggest nafkimina is, let's say it's circum... Well, A, there's a sheer question I'll get to. But B, let's say it's circumstances that would not constitute you in a sukkah. Let's say you're a mitzayer. Let's say you're a chola. Let's say it's raining. You still have to eat in the sukkah. If it's just a way of doing the mitzvah of dirat sukkah, but must be done on the first night with eating. But if it's not dira because it's raining and because of mitzvah and chol and all of those, maybe I'm exempt. Or no, maybe tough luck. The first night it's a mitzvah, eat kazayas in the sukkah, regardless of whether it normally constitutes dirat sukkah. So that is a big debate, what happens when it rains the first night, when people are waiting, is it going to stop raining before chatzos, after chatzos, when can you actually go to bed and just decide it's not going to, just go ahead with your meal. So that is a big machlok as Rishonim. Relatedly, as Michael says, is how much, if it's about learning straight from matzah and not about a form of dirat sukkah, so maybe I'm Yosef with Kezayis. Um, if, however, it's a way of doing the normal dirat sukkah, but must be done the first night, maybe it needs a kibetza, right? So that's, or more than a kibetza, whatever the amount is. Tosvos, if you look at Tosvos, Tosvos actually quotes Yerushalmi, Tosvos takes the king to Duru, look at the last few lines of Tosvos, he says like this, he says, Chaveraya Bo. It's like four, five lines before the Tosos ends of Teishru. Ima lahalan atikanis lematza keshu ta'ava. Avkan atikanis lusukah b'ta'ava. If we're learning it out from matzah, maybe we should say the same way you're not supposed to eat before it gets to be close to nightfall, so you eat matzah with an appetite, maybe here too. Now again, if you think about it, sukkah is not about an appetite for the food. The eating is just an expression of what it means to be living in a place. But maybe for the first night, it does become focused on the food that you're eating, and you have to have an appetite for that food. It does become like the mitzvah of eating matzah. Or he says another thing. Now there, the question might be, as Michael says, it's kezayis as opposed to kebetzah, but also maybe it's an issue about bread. Right? The same way matzah has to be made out of bread. Maybe your yotze sukkah without it being bread. Maybe your yotze sukkah with mizonos. Maybe your yotze sukkah with uh, meat and potatoes. But no, maybe if we learn it out from matzah, it has to dash to be bread. So this becomes a lot of interesting implications of how much is it mapped just like matzah? Eat bread in a sukkah, kezayis worth? Or how much is it? No, the first night, the mitzvah sukkah has to be done the first night in the context of what it means to do the mitzvah sukkah. So there's a very lot of debates of the Rishonim around those issues. And then let's not forget the other point about the idea of the rest of the time, when you dwell, you dwell in the sukkah, but you have more latitude about what to be doing that would require it or not require it. Let's now continue with the next statement of Rabbi Eliezer. The old Amar Rabbi Eliezer. So that so Rabbi Eliezer also says if you miss the first night you can make up until the last night. So the Gemara says the Amar Rabbi Eliezer Abashrei Sudos Chayiv Adam Lechol B'Sukah Achas Biyom Bachas Belayla One minute doesn't he say fourteen meals? Now what exactly is the question about the fact that he says? 14 meals. Why does that seem to be in contradiction to the idea that he says that you make it up the last night? So Rashi, one way of understanding the way Rashi explains it, well, there's a couple ways to understand that. One is, why is he emphasizing if you miss the first night? 
Meaning, if he says you have to make up 14 meals, mm-hmm. then he should say if you miss anyone. What's the emphasis of the first night? Or another sort of way, nuanced way of saying it is, if he just said, focus on the fact that you had a mitzvah the first night, then I can understand that you make it up on the last night, because then it doesn't emphasize sukkah. Like, it's not, there's a mitzvah to eat the first night, you mitzvah the first night, fine, you do it any other night, you do it even the last night. It's about eating, some of you are making up some eating, which happened to be in a sukkah. But if you're saying, no, it's a mitzvah, a sukkah demands 14 meals, then how could you make up a sukkah problem after sukkah? How good is it to do it after sukkah? So what's going on here? So two certain ways to understand the question of Rabbi Eliezer. Let's see what the Gemara's answer is. Um, I'm a Bira, I'm a Rabbi Ami Chazerbo Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer re- reversed himself. Now, which one did he reverse himself from? <laughs> this is a debate of Rashi Tosos. Rashi says he dropped the idea of 14. He basically went back to the rabbis and said only the first night is what really matters. But once it's about the first night, it doesn't have to be focused particularly on sukkah. There's a mitzvah of eating the first night that actually connects to the discussion we had a minute ago. And therefore, if you miss the first night, you can make it up any other night and even up to the last night, even if you're not eating in a sukkah. That's the way Rashi explains it. Tosa says, no, no, no. It's the other thing he reversed himself from. It's what he said, 14. Basically, according to Tosa, there's an idea of 14 meals, but don't necessarily double underline the word sukkah. There's an idea of 14 meals during the Chag. Okay, but it's not so much about sukkah has to be 14 meals. And therefore, if you missed one of those meals, not even necessarily the first one, then you can actually make it up even on Shemini Atzeret because it's about 14 meals. It's not really 14 meals, but sukkah. Now, why did he say Lele Yom Tov HaRishon? So actually, that, um, that, that girsa is a late girsa. The Maharsha says, all the earlier Mishnayot said, said, Nishalo Achal Yom Tov HaRishon. Not Lele Yom Tov HaRishon. And it's not about the first night. He says, Chadashi Mikarovo. Now there's these new girsas, these, you know, that say Lele Yom Tov HaRishon in order to make it connect to what the rabbi said. But the actual original girsas, he says, no, you missed one of the days and therefore you well, make it up. Yom Tov, but Yom Tov could be, you know, you know you, right, but once you're not saying Lele Yom Tov, then it could also be less Lavdafka. Okay? So there's an interesting debate now, right, of Rashi and Tosros, whether he is saying making up the first night which is what Rashi said and he's dropping the idea of 14 or whether he's saying make up any missed night but it's not necessarily focused on the sukkah per se on the fact that it's all about 14 in a sukkah that sukkah is central no he's not closer on 14 you need 14 He's closer on the idea that it's central to the idea of sukkah because you need 14 meals over yantu, but not because bis sukkah. And therefore, you can make up one of those meals even or afterwards, more, even right? on... Same as three. Right? Even so three presumably meals. not. Presumably he lets you make up one. Again, there's also a question how much implicitly we're comparing it to the Chagiga, which it does parallel to in some ways by the language and you make it up even on the eighth day and so on, and how much that's only one thing to make up. Let's take a look. It's a good question. How many can you? Let's take a look. Let's get at least to the bottom of the top. So the Sounds like this. Mashlim b'mai. What what do you do to make up the missed one for? Elaim but the rifta. If it's bread, suited the That's the normal meal you would be having. Let's say you're eating it on shmini atzeret. You know, so that that's what makes that to be distinct. What makes that count as the makeup? Okay. So maybe you could say the fact that you're doing two is like when you make up a misdavening, you know, the fact that you did a second one. But that's, yeah, according to that, there's nothing, there's nothing distinctive about that. So that won't be good for a makeup. Elamai yashling. Yashling meaning targima. You do it with various delicacies. Now, what are these delicacies? So, if you look at Rashi, Rashi says, meaning targima. Lachar shesilek yaviyu parparaot umadanim lefanaf kagon peiros v'kasinim v'klotot umivushalot. So various cooked dishes and so on. He also throws in fruit. 
So Tosa says, no, excuse me. If you're making it up, and what you're making up is an achir of a sukkah, then it has to be the type of eating that would require a sukkah. And Tosa goes back to remind us that fruit doesn't require a sukkah. So according to Tosa, meat and targima are things like meat and potatoes that do require a sukkah. Okay, but this again gets to that issue of are there things that are not bread and not mizonos that require a sukkah? And for Tosos, the answer is yes, and that's the, the meaning of Targima. But the Gemara is not clear about that. Again, since the Gemara is allowing you to do a makeup even on Shemini Atzeres, maybe it doesn't have to be things that are chayv in a sukkah, but Tosos assumes that it does. One minute, so, yeah, so let's take a look. Tanya Namihachi, we taught similarly. In Hishlin, the Mini Targima, Yatva, if you did your makeup with Mini Targima, then you are, then you, then that counts as your makeup for, um, for, what do you call it, uh, for, um, um, for, for the missed meal. Now Rashi says, he says, if you did your makeup with Mini Targima, suggests that if you actually had a real bread meal, it would certainly be a makeup, which is a little bit different than the Gemara before, because the Gemara before made it sound like it had to be something that was Nikar as being distinct, here, it's okay to make it up with meaning targima. Well, I know. So I'm saying that before made it sound like that wouldn't be good. Here, the language of in his slim sounds like that certainly would be good. And that's what Rashi says. Says Rashi. Okay, so... Um, but again, before the Gemara sounded like it had to be distinct. I don't know. I don't know. Um, okay. Um, one minute. Um... Okay, so the one sounds like this. So, Shal, let's get a little bit further to the bottom. Shal Apotropis Shal Agrippas Hamela. So, the sort of the, uh, whatever, the uh, manager of Agrippas the king asked this Rebbe Eliezer, like I said, I only have one meal a day. And you, Rebbe Eliezer, say that on Sukkot we have to have two meals each day. So, this is again Tosus' proof that Rebbe Eliezer didn't reverse himself about the idea of 14 meals. Maybe I'll just have one meal in my sukkah and be done with it. He said back Every day you have for yourself a lot of delicacies to, for your own respect, you know, to indulge yourself. You can't have one, one little delicacy in honor, to honor your creator. But what's interesting about this is, A, the idea that you needed more than one meal a day, or, you know, whatever, you needed a regular two meals a day. And B, the idea of parperet, a delicacy, connects to what we said before about the mini targima, that some of those 14 can possibly be made up even without a fixed uda. Maybe one way to get to the number 14 is to allow yourself to do some of these some of these parparaot or what the Gemara called before mine targima. Let's read one more story. The Ochalo, he asked him as well. I have two wives. One in Tiberias and one in Sipori. I have two sukkahs. Can I go from one sukkah to the next? It's funny to use and exempt myself. What's the exempt thing? But okay. Can I go, you have one day in one sukkah, the next day in the next? I'm a low. Low. I'm sorry. No. Shani Omer, because my position is, when you leave on sukkah, because notice, right, he said you have to eat 14 meals in a sukkah. So that is not just about me personally, I have to eat 14 meals, but what makes the sukkah, we're going to read one more, let's read one more sentence, what makes the sukkah a house 
is that you've been using it for all seven days. So if you split that between two Sukkot, neither Sukkot gets to be defined as your house. You've been dwelling regularly, but the idea is that the Sukkah has to be your bayit, and that has to be in one Sukkah. Tanya, not Tanya, we turn in the Brisa, whether you're Yezer Omer, Ain Yotzimi Sukkah is Sukkah. You cannot leave one Sukkah and eat in another Sukkah. Your 14 meals all have to be in the same sukkah, seven days in the same sukkah. The ain osin sukkah becholish yomoed. And similarly, you can't make a sukkah in the middle of a chag because in order for it to be a sukkah, it has to be for all seven days the same sukkah. The chachami and the sages disagree. Yotzimi sukkah le sukkah, the osin sukkah becholish yomoed. You can do it. They also say you don't need 14 meals. It doesn't have to be for the whole seven days. We shove him, but they agree. If it did fall down, you can rebuild it. That would be considered to be a continuation of the same sukkah. And this gets to the whole interesting discussion what we've had before in the Gemara, that old Greek-ish uh, question, I forget what it's called, about you know the ship that you're constantly replacing one board at a time. Is it the same ship or not? So your sukkah falls down and you rebuild it. Is it the same sukkah or not? Tosos indicates that you'd have to use the same wood to rebuild it for Rabbi Eliezer to be considered the same sukkah. Rashi sounds a little bit more like since it fell down, anything you build is considered a conceptual substitute, even if it's in a different place and it's different wood. But nevertheless, this is Rabbi Eliezer's idea that's not just your personal obligation to eat two meals a day for seven days, but what makes it your sukkah is that you've been living in it constantly for those whole seven days. And if you don't do that and you split it between two sukkot, you're not yoked. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you.